The Interchange is brought to you by Enel X, the global leader in advanced energy solutions. Enel X serves large businesses, governments, utilities, as well as thousands of consumers in an effort to bring cleaner, smarter solutions to market and enable rapid decarbonization. Learn what Enel X can do for your business at enelx.com. That's E N E L X.com. The Interchange is also brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions Derms products are used by distribution utilities, energy service companies, and microgrid operators to manage grid capacity and resilience and to seamlessly integrate energy assets to the grid and market. To find out how Smarter Grid Solutions software can integrate renewable and distributed energy into the grid and give you real control over your clean energy assets, visit info dot smartergridsolutions.com slash interchange or just click through that link there in the show notes. It's not out of the question that, you know, a decade from now, uh, cheap wind and solar could come in at, you know, one to two cents unsubsidized. But I think what everyone is missing is that that's the wholesale energy cost essentially at the point of interconnection uh, wherever that wind or solar farm is putting their energy onto the grid or, or into something. Deep down in the bowels of the spreadsheets for so many companies pursuing a solution to deep decarbonization of some sector is this cell that assumes that they will get two to three cent per kilowatt hour clean, abundant, reliable electricity. How realistic is that? This is The Interchange. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. Okay, so there's this thing that's been bothering me lately. I think at this point, there is pretty wide agreement that decarbonizing the power sector is the linchpin of any serious strategy to combat climate change. It's not the whole solution on its own, but it plays a big role for three reasons. First of all, power is just still a big chunk of global CO2 emissions. Decarbonize the power sector and that chunk vanishes. Second, It is arguably the major emitting sector with the most realistic, achievable pathway to net zero, given available and emerging technologies. So in other words, we think we can do it, though we'll come back to this. And third, a decarbonized power sector unlocks massive opportunities across nearly every other sector as well, either via direct electrification, say passenger vehicles, or via indirect electrification, via the production of something like green hydrogen or electrofuels. It's that third one that we're concerned with today and that's been bothering me. My job at EIP is to invest in companies with revolutionary technologies to solve the big challenges of climate change. As such, I spend a lot of my time these days talking to entrepreneurs who have some amazing novel solution to decarbonize something. A sector, say, aviation, maritime, industrial processes, agriculture, whatever it might be, or even a solution to remove carbon from the atmosphere, like direct air capture. So many of these solutions rely on electrochemistry. In other words, they're using electricity to power some chemical process. Between all these new electrochemical approaches and the world of batteries, which is also electrochemical technology, I said the other day that I think electrochemistry will be the technical discipline with the greatest impact on climate tech over the next decade. I do think that's true. 
So all these solutions play into the move to electrify everything, which is a fun hashtag, uh, but also a heuristic for one of the big components of decarbonization. It's great. But we've also been noticing that many of these approaches rely on what we might think of as pretty heroic assumptions around the future cost, availability, and cleanliness of electricity in order for the economics of them to work. Basically, we're electrifying some process that usually, if it is a replacement for another process, is burning fossil fuels directly. And in order to compete, even with something like a carbon price, you need electricity to be really cheap and really available. In order for it to be decarbonization, it needs to be clean. So my colleague, Andy Lubershane, who you've heard before on this podcast, and I have been talking about this a lot lately as we notice this happening more and more. So as a result, here's version four in the series where Andy and I take a conversation we've been having mostly on Slack and put it behind a microphone. At issue, very cheap, very clean, completely abundant electricity may be the skeleton key to decarbonization, but is it realistic? Here's my conversation with Andy. Andy, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be back. All right. So let's start by just uh, taking turns listing off some of the non-power sectors for which the solution to decarbonize or part of the solution to decarbonize may indeed be power or some process that requires electricity. So you, you go first. Well, I guess we'll start with the obvious, the one that uh, everyone's most familiar with, transport, particularly light, maybe medium-duty ground vehicles, which I think you know we've, we've talked about in previous podcasts, are uh, the presumptive nominee for decarbonizing that sector is pretty clearly electrification at this point. Battery technology is getting better and better. There might even be some step changes in battery technology and charging technology later this decade, which I think would pretty much cement electrification as the the solution for decarbonizing a, a good chunk of ground transport on the light and medium duty side. Right. Okay. So that's the most obvious one. I'll then maybe take the other part of transportation just to round that out. So the obvious stuff is light duty passenger electric vehicles or vehicles that become electric vehicles. The less obvious, but still likely pathway again, via electrification direct or indirect like battery electrification or indirect via things like green hydrogen or some other liquid fuel that is based on electricity or produced using electricity would be heavy duty transportation, which can be trucks, but it can also be ships and it can potentially be planes, smaller planes and things like that. So heavy duty transportation, there are alternatives in some of that. So for example, in the aviation world, there's also bio-based sustainable aviation fuel that's vying for longer distance aviation. Uh, but, you know, a good chunk of all transportation, I would say, with the possible exception of long distance planes, will, if it's going to be decarbonized, will either directly or indirectly be decarbonized via electricity. Yeah, I would agree. And, and I think even in things like heavy duty trucking, where it does seem like, you know, hydrogen or, or some derivative thereof, um, probably has an advantage today uh, from a technical and performance standpoint, pretty clearly over direct battery-based electrification. You know, I think there's a decent chance that starts to change over the course of this decade. And so I think that's still very much a battleground that direct electrification could win. Right. Okay. So that's transportation. Let's talk about a couple others. Name your, name your next favorite. 
So I think the next in line in terms of, you know, likelihood of electrification as well as ease of electrification, though, you know, nothing's easy uh, in this world, um, is building heat. Uh, and the reason for that is because heat pumps are, are so magically wonderful because you put in a kilowatt hour of electricity and you get out more than a kilowatt hour's worth of heat, oftentimes two to three in, in, uh, in warmer climates where you still need heating, even four or five times uh, as much heat as the energy that you put in. And so because of that, um, it enables heat pumps on a, on a marginal cost basis to be reasonably competitive, in some cases very competitive, with direct combustion of fuels for heat. I will say that the reason it's not so purely easy is because while heat pumps are magically magically wonderful, um, in very cold temperatures, their magic sort of goes away. And so as the, the temperature decreases outside down below zero to minus five, minus 10, minus 15, 20 degrees, um, heat pumps, some heat pumps just stop working, but even heat pumps that are really weatherized uh, become less and less efficient uh, until they lose their efficiency van uh, advantage altogether, and so that you know, I think of that sort of as the winter night problem, particularly in you know in cold northern climates where um, heating your home through those really cold winter nights with a heat pump just becomes uh, more and more difficult and expensive. Okay, so at another time, I want to get deep on heat pumps on this show, but. In the meantime, suffice it to say that um, space building heating is another category where there's where electricity may be uh, a viable solution, probably is a viable solution for a good chunk of it. And then there are some edge cases or maybe somewhat large edge cases like very cold climates where it gets more difficult. But nonetheless, um, possibility that electricity ends up being the, the key there as well. I'll take a turn then. And since you talked about building heating, let's round out the heat world. The other big area of emissions uh, is the industrial sector. And a lot of the emissions, as we talked about before on the show, from the industrial sector come from the heat generation, because a lot of industrial processes just require high temperature heat. And the way that we currently get most of our high temperature heat is by um, burning fossil fuels. There also, there's, you know, I think the to the extent that there are uh, attempts at solutions to that sector, setting aside carbon capture, many of them are either direct electrification, where I would say there is actually less activity in the industrial space at the moment. It the, you know, economics are a little bit more challenging for direct direct electrification, but there is some effort going on there. Um and then uh also hydrogen for industrial heat. It's one of the sectors that I think there's the most excitement around hydrogen as an end market for hydrogen. Um, and so again, if you produce that hydrogen using electrolysis uh, to make green hydrogen, then then it is ultimately dependent on electricity, the availability and the cost thereof as well. So, you know, you could say, broadly speaking, decarbonizing heat, be it building or industrial, uh, may drive through the road of electricity. Yeah. And, and again, you know, industrial heat is an interesting one where while there's not as much attention to direct electrification today as there is to uh, a green hydrogen or electricity to hydrogen pathway, you know, there's the potential to electrify uh, heating, even high temperature heat directly. We, we know how to do it. Uh, there, there's a lot of questions, though, uh, I would say around how to integrate electrification of high temp heat into these existing processes that were not designed for an electric 
based heating system. They were designed for something where you have a single point of fuel that's being combusted. And so that's one of the trickier things. I think one of the reasons that people in generally uh, think of hydrogen first when they think of decarbonizing industrial heat is because um, to some degree, you can imagine burning hydrogen just the same way that you burn natural gas or coal for those heating processes today. Right. Okay. And so there, there are other smaller emitting sectors where this could apply as well. I'll mention one other, by the way, which is outside of an emitting sector, which is, you know, this burgeoning world of carbon removal, um, of actually removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Now there's many different ways to do that. There are some nature-based solutions that, you know, you don't, it doesn't require electricity to, to plant a tree, but some of the carbon removal solutions, particularly some of the direct air capture solutions, are themselves electrochemical solutions. And so if you are carbon engineering and you're trying to build a huge direct air capture plant, you're also using a lot of electricity. And again, a lot of your input costs and ultimately your OPEX for your system is really baked into the cost and availability of electricity as well. So it's not just in the emissions mitigation world, it is also in the carbon removal world, at least in a part of it where this applies. You, you know, when I think across all these sectors, what's interesting is if, if, I, if I told myself today that we had no other means of decarbonizing all of these end uses, if electricity was the only game in town, I actually wouldn't be worried anymore from a technical standpoint. I think we could get 90, 95% of the way there. It's just a question of how much it costs. It's a techno-economic question, not so much just a feasibility question at this point, at least based on things that I'm seeing out there and technology, you know, in the pipeline. Right. Okay. So let's step back here for a second then. You know, whether uh, any number of these pan out, it seems clear to me that, you know, electricity is the linchpin of a good chunk of any reasonable deep decarbonization strategy. There's no, there's no plausible pathway to deep decarbonization that does not involve electricity gaining market share while decarbonizing itself. And so the thing that you and I have been talking about, and the reason we wanted to have this conversation is that as we've explored this world, and as we talked to lots of companies that are pursuing technologies that are using electricity as a solution to decarbonize something other than power, we've noticed that many of these companies have, uh, you know, what you might call somewhat heroic assumptions around that electricity that they're going to get. And so what we want to do is kind of run through what some of those assumptions that we've been seeing companies make are, how realistic they are, and then what it would actually take uh, to get there. Because, and I think this is going to be this is going to be an incredibly important question in solving climate change because so many approaches basically say, well, look, the cost of renewables is falling and everybody expects it to continue to fall, which is true. And so we're going to be riding that wave of ever cheaper power and ever greener power. And as a result, the economics of our system work. And that's a, that's a big question mark for a lot of these companies. So let's just run through it. Um, at the high level, talk a little bit about kind of what, generally speaking, we've been seeing many companies expecting that they're going to get from electricity? Well, well, I think you nailed it. It's, it's common knowledge, not just, um, you know, in, in energy circles at this point, but among the broader public that renewables are getting cheaper and cheaper. And, you know, I just heard last night on a non-specialist, you know, non-interchange podcast about how cheap renewables have become. And so I think, you know, most people uh, in the industry 
uh, when they think of renewables, they're starting to think about and even bank on, you know, power that's coming from wind and solar in reasonably good resource areas in the two to three cent per kilowatt hour range unsubsidized. And that's probably at the conservative end. I mean, it's not out of the question that, you know, a decade from now, uh, cheap wind and solar, solar in the desert, wind in the plains of, of the U.S. in any way, um, could come in at, you know, one to two cents unsubsidized, no investment or production tax credit included. Um, but I think what everyone is missing is that that's the wholesale energy cost, essentially at the point of interconnection, uh, wherever that wind or solar farm is putting their energy onto the grid or, or into something. That's the, the pure cost of generation, and it's the pure cost of generation in these decently to very good wind and solar resource areas. Um, but I do think it's achievable. It's just, a, 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 as we'll talk about, a question of how you get that really cheap power where and when it's needed. Right. Exactly. And so the the limitations, so, okay, let's just assume you are going to run an electrochemical process to do something that decarbonizes some other sector. And you're baking into your unit cost model that you will be able to get electricity at those prices that you are describing. And indeed, it is realistic that you will be able to get a, a a solar PPA or wind PPA for one to two cents a kilowatt hour or two to three cents a kilowatt hour today in the right locations. Um, but you already alluded to one of the challenges, right? That's the wholesale price. That's the price that those po- those projects deliver into the grid. Uh, and we'll talk in, in a bit, I think, about the difference between the wholesale price and the delivered price. Second thing is, is obviously a capacity factor, right? They're not generating all the time. So if you're relying on just that power, then you can only pull that power at the times when it, the solar is is generating or the wind is generating absent adding energy storage or something like that. And so now you're running whatever your process is at 30% capacity factor, maybe 50% if it's wind, 60% if it's offshore wind, but not a, close to 100% of the time, which is what most industrial processes want to do. It's how you amortize your costs faster. Uh, and then there's the the component of like, where are you going to put your system, whatever your electrochemical system is? And if it's a big system that requires a lot of power, um, what does that actually require from the grid? And are there like upgrade transmission distribution upgrades that are required in order to do that? So I think there's just a bunch of nuances that make it more challenging than it appears at first blush to get the kind of prices and availability of power in these models that are currently largely just models or where you can get it, you know, in one place in the perfect site. Um, but we need to decarbonize entire sectors of the economy and it's going to be a little harder to do that. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, there's a, there's also the fundamental challenge that's maybe even a, a precursor or more basic challenge, uh, which is that absent carbon policy of some form, I, I'm not necessarily saying it has to be a carbon tax or a carbon price, but absent some constraint on carbon emissions, electrification, even with, let's say, two cent wind or solar power, still has to compete with this incredibly cheap natural gas resource, particularly in North America that we have, which if you're buying gas at the wholesale level at the Henry Hub in bulk um, in the U.S. is currently less than one cent 
per kilowatt hour on a, on a normalized basis. And frankly, large industrial consumers don't pay much more than that right now for gas that's delivered to them. Um, now, households, smaller consumers, household consumers, for example, um, pay about three times that. So um, about two thirds of, of the price they pay for natural gas kind of on average is actually for the transmission and distribution and delivery of that gas. But nevertheless, that still means they're paying, you know, three cents a kilowatt hour effectively for gas that's delivered to them. Meanwhile, you have two to three cent wind and solar power that's generated, you know, out in the boonies uh, and needs to be delivered via electrical infrastructure to households. And so, you know, essentially, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's just really, really tough to compete straight up with North American natural gas with, with uh, shale gas. So let's set that aside for a second and assume that um, there is some kind of carbon pricing coming. And let's just assume that, you know, all these companies that we've seen that are assuming they can get uh, two to three cent per kilowatt hour power, if they can indeed get it, then then maybe they will be competitive. But let's contrast that with what actual customers pay. So you you mentioned a little bit um, the residential side. Let's set that aside for a second, because I think I don't see anybody who's building some residential energy solution assuming they're going to get two to three cents a kilowatt hour. We're talking mostly about the big industrial stuff um, or carbon removal. So what, what, you know, give us a sense of like actual delivered prices for industrial electricity to industrial customers. I, we'll talk pre predominantly about the U.S. I think here, but what does that actually look like and how different is that from those wholesale prices we've been talking about? Well, it's interesting because, you know, if you look at a gross level, the average industrial electricity cost paid per kilowatt hour today <clears throat> is a little under seven cents per kilowatt hour. But that's just the average cost overall. And it's actually not uh, reflective of the way that big industrial electricity rates actually work. So in reality, big industrials often pay a very low cost per kilowatt hour that's typically in line with the actual marginal cost of power generation at any given time, um, sometimes even lower. So that's probably in that, you know, actually two to three cent range uh, right now, um, coming predominantly from the marginal cost of, of natural gas generation at this point, um, sometimes suppressed significantly and going negative from renewables in some parts of the country. Um, but the rest of the, the bill, the total bill for a large industrial consumer, you know, and of course, this varies a lot across the country by utility, by a specific rate class. But, but generalizing, a lot of the bill is composed of these more peak demand-based, capacity-based charges um, that often have significant benefits for using energy off-peak, uh, meaning, you know, off the, the generation and transmission peak that the utility faces. Um, and those charges are largely there, there to recover you know, the fixed costs of the grid and, and firm generation capacity, um, which are the things that the, you know, that two cent wind and solar power that we're describing don't don't take into account. We're going to take a brief pause here to talk about our supporters of the interchange. We are brought to you by Enel X. 
Look, we all know the energy industry is changing quickly, changing faster every day. Project developers are seeing growing demand as businesses and utilities seek more renewable and distributed energy. And LX helps solar partners get more revenue from projects by adding flexible distributed energy assets. And LX installs, maintains, and manages energy storage systems, smart electric vehicle charging systems, and more. And LX's solutions help customers of all sizes use energy smarter by accessing lucrative grid programs and reducing emissions. Find out more about NLX at enelx.com. That's enelx.com. We are also brought to you by Smarter Grid Solutions. Smarter Grid Solutions is a leading enterprise energy software company specializing in distributed energy resource management systems. It operates from New York and Glasgow. Smarter Grid Solutions has the Strata Grid product, which seamlessly integrates controls and optimizes grid-connected distributed energy units of any type and size in any location. This enables distribution utilities to monitor and control customer DER connections, meaning they can manage grid capacity and headroom, manage flexibility, save on grid upgrade investments, and serve their customers better. Smarter Grid Solutions has already saved distribution utility customers more than $300 million in investment costs for grid upgrades. To learn more about Smarter Grid Solutions and the control of clean energy assets offered by StratagRid, visit info.smartergridsolutions.com slash interchange, or go ahead over to that link in the show notes. You know, there's a, a reality that the actual average delivered cost of industrial power is seven cents, which is a far cry from the two to three cents we've been talking about here. But uh, I, I don't want this whole conversation to be overly negative, I guess my view, and you could tell me if this aligns with yours as well, is that um, it's not impossible to get that kind of pricing. It certainly won't be in the future, but it's going to require probably some combination of a number of things. And depending on what kind of asset you're trying to build, you have more or less ability to get these kinds of things. So for example, the, the kinds of things that you could do, right? Example one is, can you place your facility out in the boonies and actually co-locate it or put it, you know, literally behind the meter with a wind or a solar project? There's been plenty of discussion about doing this, like attaching large electrolysis projects to produce green hydrogen attached to like an offshore wind project. Right. If you can do that, then now you're paying a lot more for the storage and transportation of the hydrogen on the other side, but you probably can get the cheap and highly available power. Yeah. So, you know, in, in that case, if you're if the capex of the system, which actually we're expecting to be the case for hydrogen, if the capex is very low, um, so if we get really, really cheap electrolysis, and that electrolysis can be made flexible so it can ramp up and down with wind and solar generation, um, which I think is possible, then it doesn't really matter that much that you're operating at a very low capacity factor in an inconsistent manner. You can essentially accept the intermittency of renewables because your process cares mostly about the cost of energy. It cares less about uh, the capital cost because you know we're assuming that's going to be quite low. So hydrogen is a good example, I think, where that might work. Right. So that's one option, but you can't, not everything is going to work that way, right? You can't, you're not going to put every industrial facility um, that's producing whatever chemical or something like that next to, next to a wind or a solar project. Um, the second thing you could do, you alluded to, which is the, the degree to which you can modulate your demand profile 
is correlated with the savings that you can get on your electricity price. In other words, if you need to operate at 100% load factor all the time, uh, and you need to be using the, mo- the same amount of power all the time, then you're pretty stuck. Uh, and you're going to be subject to whatever the, the price of power is at any given time. If on the other hand, you have pretty flexible load and you can curtail your load at various times, or you can, you know, even on a daily basis, just like you run your process, um, at the times when power is cheapest and not run it when it's not, obviously that drives a lot of value, but that then gets to a different kind of optimization challenge around, um, how much is it worth it to you not to run your process all the time in exchange for cheaper electricity costs? Right. Yeah. And, and I think actually that's probably, at the end of the day, one of the best best solutions for, for getting much lower electricity costs, for achieving those low electricity costs, is if you can shape your demand in some way um, to the profile of, of wind and solar generation. Um, and you can do that through demand side flexibility, potentially, um, by going through that optimization problem that you just alluded to, um, deciding when to run your plant and when not to, you could also do it potentially through some form of on-site storage. It's, it's a good, um, it's a good use case for some, some form of behind the meter energy storage. Right. Another factor here that I think we should talk about is the difference between, and I don't think I, I've seen folks not accounting for this sufficiently, the degree to which the amount of electricity you use dictates the sort of buying power that you have, right? If your system that is doing whatever it's doing is using 50 kilowatts of electricity, there's not a whole lot you could do. You can, you know, put solar behind the meter, uh, you know, on site at a rooftop and use that or something like that. But if you're plugged into the grid, you know, you're just not big enough to like do, do a whole lot. Uh, you certainly can't negotiate your own tariff or anything like that. But if you're putting 50 megawatts on the grid, now you look like a small data center and things get a little bit more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we often talk about techno-economic optimization, um, but in reality, the optimization problem a lot of big industrials face is really a techno-economic, regulatory, political one. Um, and um, they actually do have significant sway oftentimes with regulators and policymakers who want to encourage industry and economic development within their regions um, to negotiate for for. Uh, favorable treatment in regulatory processes, which are how electric rates are set. Um, and so, um, you know, if you, if you look at electricity prices today, you could argue that already um, industrial electricity users in some cases get a break. Um, and so I think, yes, if you're big enough, um, it's it's actually not unreasonable to assume that you're going to have access to some of the lower cost power uh, uh, that that's available. Okay, so put yourself in the shoes of somebody who has one of these technologies, you want to bring it to market in the next few years, and you basically just need the cheapest, most available, hopefully green electricity that you could possibly get. What else can you do? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about long-term strategic uh, approaches to to securing low-cost electricity for for big end users. Um, and, And we've been sort of thinking about this once 
wind and solar get to very large scale once they're very high penetration in the power system. I think in the nearer term, really good contracting can actually make a difference for for some of these industrial customers who want to experiment with electrification. Uh, and that means signing the best wind and solar PPAs and you know, procuring on-site storage in some form, uh, or potentially, you know, procuring wind and solar that are in some in some way firmed or partially firmed with storage um, via a PPA that can get you access to better prices than your competitors. I think there's still room for that today. All right, I want to step back for a second. Um, the other thing that I think a lot of folks are not reckoning with is what all of this collectively will mean for the grid and for electricity. Right. So say that we do end up using electricity to power a fairly large chunk of transportation, a fairly large chunk of industrial heating, a fairly large chunk of space heating, a, you know, some of our carbon removal and and all this other stuff. Like, what does this mean in terms of what we have to do to the electricity sector while we are electrifying all these other things? I mean, it basically means we have to double or triple the grid. Um, in, in and turn, decarbonize it simultaneously. and decarbonize it simultaneously. So we have to um, double to triple the electricity system in terms of transmission and distribution capacity, and and in terms of uh, probably firm power needs, meaning firm generation capacity. And it actually might mean uh, more than doubling or tripling capacity in some cases because the the need for electricity um, at particular times might be even higher in terms of the peak to average ratio than it is today, where um, peak load is, is largely driven by cooling. If peak load ends up being driven by heating for industry, especially for buildings um, in the winter, and if it ends up being driven by uh, EV charging also in the winter when batteries are less efficient, then I think we can potentially expect an even higher peak to average ratio. Um, so, you know, I'm going to say very rough numbers. We have to probably triple the grid. And do we have a sense of how realistic that is? Like, what's it going to take to triple the grid? Well, you know, we, we tripled the grid roughly speaking, from, you know, the early days of electrification, rural electrification in the 40s and 50s through the early 2000s. Um, so, you know, we had we had longer to do it um, the last time around. Um, we can triple the, the grid again in 30 years. I think it's I think it's a very big challenge. I think it's possible. Um, I can tell you the places that I'm most worried about. Um, I'm probably most worried about transmission capacity. And, and the reason is just that we've seen uh, over the last decade or two, so much, um, so much opposition to building very large interregional transmission lines. Um, and frankly, we haven't seen almost any success uh, among utilities, independent developers in building that kind of line that are, you know, largely actually proposed to be dedicated to moving large amounts of renewable energy from the places where it's really cheap to generate renewable power um, to load centers. So basically moving renewable power from the middle of the country out to the coasts. Um, and, 
you know, at, at the current pace, given current policy and, and the, you know, the way things have gone for that type of transmission development so far, it's hard to be confident that transmission will be able to, to keep up with that pace of the energy transition and electrification at the same time. Yep. All right. So gun to your head, you're building a, you're building electrolyzers and you're running your techno-economic analysis, you're going to bring your product to market, let's say in 2025 at scale in the United States, what do you assume you can achieve for electricity pricing and availability? So, you know, if, if I'm making hydrogen, um, and, and at that point I'm assuming the end uses that I'm trying to serve, um, ideally will probably be big industrial consumers. So I'm moving, my goal is going to be to move a lot of hydrogen, in very large quantities. Um, then probably the best strategy is to site my electrolyzers out in the boonies, right next to wind and solar plants, not worry so much about storage, um, get cheap electrolyzers that can be reasonably flexible, run them when I have power from renewables, put the hydrogen in a pipeline, which I think we can expect to be on, on the order of similar costs to uh, natural gas pipelines today, which are, are far cheaper for moving a lot of energy over long distances than electric transmission lines. Um, probably a little bit easier to site as well, particularly if it's a hydrogen pipeline, uh, though still not sure how the, what, what the public acceptance around hydrogen pipelines is going to be, so, so far untested largely. Um, but yeah, that that would probably be my strategy, um, and 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 pipe the hydrogen directly to to places where you know there's a bunch of industrial end users for it. Yeah, I think that's right in the long term. I don't know that you're realistically going to have hydrogen pipelines in 2025. They're going to be able to utilize. So I don't know that you can bank on doing that in the short term. Like initially, maybe you you still site out at, in the boonies at the solar wind project, but you rely on you know, liquid hydrogen and trucks to deliver initially until the pipeline infrastructure gets built up. I don't know. It's an interesting timing question for all these companies. Because the alternative, obviously, is if you have big industrial customers, put the electrolyzer on site at the industrial location, which there's a lot of activity around that. You know, try to take advantage of the industrial electricity rate that that big industrial customer already has um, and scale that up even larger. But obviously, don't take advantage of the really, really cheap wholesale priced solar or wind, but you do avoid all that, uh, transportation and storage. It's doable. My, my sense is that, that, you know, the economics will favor, you know, remote hydrogen generation, uh, with bulk transport and pipelines over the long term. But, but I think that's right. All right. So the one remaining thing that we haven't talked about, you know, we've, we've basically described if you're going to electrify everything, you need electricity to be cheap and clean. Uh, but you also need it to be reliable, or at least you need to be resilient if it's not reliable. So talk a little bit about that dynamic that will come into play, certainly as we electrify more things. Yeah, you know, I, I recently wrote a piece on this on Medium following the events in Texas earlier this year. And, you know, basically said that we've all seen now what, you know, a few days of widespread regional power outage does in a 20% energy electrified society, which is where we are roughly now. 20% of end-use energy is consumed as electricity. Um, and, you know, basically it's havoc. Um, if we get to a 50, 60, 90% hypothetically 
electrified society, then we need multiple additional levels, I think, of reliability and resilience investment um, across the grid, um, particularly if we're highly dependent on remote, you know, meaning very distant, um, intermittent renewables connected via transmission. Um, in some ways, that makes us more vulnerable than uh, the system we have today, where we have a significant amount of fuel stockpiled, um, at least in the in the form of coal. Um, and uh, although natural gas had significant failings in Texas as well, um, we also can store natural gas relatively cheaply as part of the system. So, um, so I think investments in resilience at the bulk uh, power generation and transmission level, and probably even more so at the distributed level, are just going to become absolutely critical. And yes, that, that means more cost. Uh, for the system overall, but I think it's cost that's going to be well worth it. Agreed. Well, Andy, uh, thank you for coming back on for the, what, fourth time, something like that. We'll see next time we have a great Slack conversation. That'll be number five. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Andy Lubershane is the Senior Vice President of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners, where I work. Tell us what you thought of this episode or any of the others. Um, give us a rating on wherever you get your podcast. Let us know how we're doing. Tell your friends. Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or send us an email to contact at postscriptaudio.com. Get in touch with us however you want. Send us a carrier pigeon. I don't care. Uh, we just want to know what you think. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio. Our producers are Daniel Waldorf and Stephen Lacey. I'm Shale Khan, and this is The Interchange. The Interchange.